Isn't that the best? Oh, that commercial is the most shared commercial that was a Super Bowl commercial of all time on YouTube, right? So, you know, when you, if you're on YouTube and, and you can share things that you like, that commercial, most shared Super Bowl commercial of all time. It, it got me thinking about some of the other Super Bowl commercial greats. 1980, Mean Joe Green, the Coke commercial, right? Where he says, hey, kid, catch, and throws his jersey. Anybody remember that one? I know. We're dating ourselves. Don't be afraid to raise your hand. You're old like me. You know you saw it. 1984, the Wendy's commercial. What was the saying? Nice. Nice. Kind of makes you hungry for a hamburger, doesn't it? I know. 1996, the Coke driver that was that was caught on a, right, the commercial setup, it looks like a, a Coke delivery driver, and he's, and he's caught on the store camera reaching in and drinking a Pepsi. 2000, the year 2000, the turn of the millennium, Budweiser came out with the, what's up, right? 2010, all-time favorite, we'll stop there, 2010, Betty White, the Snickers commercial. I know, it's still a crowd favorite. In 2011, when the commercial for the the Volkswagen with the kid doing the the force and and, and Darth Vader, 30 seconds in 2011 cost you $3 million. 30 seconds of airtime, $3 million. 2018, 30 seconds cost you any takers? Five. Five million. 30 Seconds of commercial airtime, 2018 Super Bowl, $5 million. Why on earth do companies pay that kind of money for advertising for the Super Bowl? We know the answer to that question. It's because there are a whole lot of people that are watching. They, they understand something, that, that if, if you want something to be seen, if you want something to be noticed, then attach it to something that is popular. That principle drives the advertising industry in the world. I think God does the same thing in the Bible. I think he does the same thing. It's why I pay careful attention to everything that happens in the Easter story. The most powerful story in all of Scripture is Jesus rising from the dead. And I think the narratives, the storylines that God picked to be included with the resurrection of Christ, I think that's God saying to you, and I think he's saying to me, hey, pay attention to this. Father, I pray that as we look into one of these stories tonight, that we're going to see the things that you want us to see. You're not selling a product. You're not trying to get us to, to buy something. You're trying to impact our lives for all eternity. And I pray that the truth of your word would influence our hearts tonight in a way that transforms us. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody said, amen. There there are multiple stories in the Easter narrative that involve people having an encounter, a personal encounter with the risen Christ 
We looked at one of them last week. It was Mary Magdalene, and that's in John chapter 20. And then when you look in Matthew 28, we see Mary, the mother of James. There's lots of Mary. Sometimes the Bible distinguishes which one it is, and sometimes it doesn't. You have to dig a little bit. This one is Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and Joanna, that they have an encounter with the risen Christ. In Luke 24, we'll see at the end of our text tonight, it's just one mention that, that, that Peter had an encounter with Christ. We're not giving any details. Now, we know that we're giving a lot of details when he's restored, and we're given lots of details of when Peter is with the other disciples in the upper room, but Luke 24 tells us that in between those two, Peter has a personal encounter with Christ. We're not giving details, but it's there. As we're going to see tonight, Cleopas and one of the other disciples on the road to Emmaus, it's one of the central stories, and it's one of actually the longest story that's attached to the resurrection of Christ. That's where we're going to look tonight. I I don't wonder if, as these people were coming back to the disciples and talking about how Jesus came to them, if some of the disciples weren't a little bit jealous that it hadn't happened for them yet. How about Andrew? He was one of the very first disciples. Do you think maybe Andrew's thinking, hey, some of these people, they didn't come in until year three. I've been here the whole time. Where's, where's my meeting with Jesus? Maybe Matthew, the tax collector, maybe his, his thought is, hey, how about that party I threw? The day that you called me to be a disciple and I paid back people many times more than what I owed them. I gave all of my wealth away on that day, but where's my encounter? hasn't happened for me yet. I think every one of these encounters left the disciples, if it didn't leave them with a little bit of envy, I think it left them with a little bit of anticipation. I think it left them with some expectation that something inside of them wanted to have an encounter with Christ too. And my hope tonight is that as we look into this message that whether or not you have had an encounter with Jesus or not, whether your last encounter was a long time ago, or if it was just in the worship set just minutes before, that something inside of your heart's going to be like those disciples 2,000 years ago that you want to have an encounter with the risen Savior because he wants to have an encounter with you. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at this entire story. It's verses 13 to 35, and because it's such a long text, I'm not going to read the whole thing from beginning to end. We're going to work our way through it and preach our way through it. And so it's Luke 24, verses 13 to 35, and we're going to start there with just the first couple of verses, and then we're going to stop and preach into that a little bit. Verses 13 to 15, Luke 24. Somebody say, suddenly. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself, here it comes, suddenly came and began walking with them. Jesus himself suddenly came 
and began walking with them. Now this is on the day of Jesus' resurrection. This is Sunday. So, so these two have set out the morning of Jesus' resurrection. As we're going to see in the story, they already know that Jesus is raised to life or they've been given evidence to that, whether or not they've believed it. We'll see. But they're on this road to a town that's seven miles away. And as they're walking down the path, as they're walking down this road, Jesus himself suddenly appears to them. Now suddenly, as a concept, is all throughout Scripture. And oftentimes, suddenly is something that's good. Many times in the Old Testament, as the Israeli army was about ready to battle their enemies, they were outnumbered, and, and, and the other army would have more advanced weaponry, they would have iron chariots, and the, the numbers were just, were just lopsided, right? The story of David and Goliath repeats itself over and over now with armies. And then the word suddenly appears. An earthquake would happen. God would cause the the enemy army to turn on itself suddenly and, and there would be a great victory. We have the story of Joshua as they were entering into the promised land, Moses' successor, and they had to pass through the, the, the town of Jericho, which was this fortified city, and that city had to conquer before they could enter in and begin to take the promised land. And the night before the battle, an angel suddenly, it says the Bible says, appears to Joshua. Joshua doesn't recognize him to be an angel at first, and he asks him, are you with us or or against us? And then we have this incredible account of of how Joshua begins to get the battle plan that's worship, actually. If you've not read the story, you should check it out. And the city falls, and so is the birth of a nation. I remember the first time that I tried to surprise Vanessa with a surprise birthday party. We were newly married. We'd been married, I don't know, about a year or so, and and, uh, and I had worked with some of her friends. We had some friends that lived in the neighborhood where we were. And, and, and so I had worked with them about doing a surprise party. And we had invited, and she didn't know. And all of her friends were going to be there. And so I, uh, under the guise of me taking her out for a date night, uh, I, I said, hey, we need to stop by Charlie and Connie's on our, on our way out. And, uh, and we've got to pick something up. And she's, all right. And so we, we, we get to the front door, and, and it opens. And the room, is it's full of all her friends. And they're like, surprise, right? And then I'm standing there all proud of myself, right? Because that's, that's how we do it as husbands. And we're, we're patting ourselves on the back constantly. And, and, and she turns, I kid you not, and, and, and with this smile, she says, does this mean we're not going on a date? <laughs> and I was like, oh, come on, Right? It's a points-based system, and I thought, you know, I'm winning the lottery here, and all of a sudden, I'm at zero, right? I'm at zero. And like, note to self, note as she walks in, and I walk away, I'm like, yeah, that didn't turn out quite like I had hoped that it it would, and I I should probably do more date nights than this, so. (laughs) Suddenly, so many times, surprises, they're intended to bring us joy, they're intended to bring us happiness, But sometimes suddenlies are tragedies. Sometimes when the Bible talks about a suddenly, it's what we talked about last week. It's something unexpected. It's something that maybe it creates that feeling as we talked about last week. It wasn't supposed to be this way. You you see, here in the story of the resurrection of Christ, we have two kinds of suddenlies that are contrasted with each other. There is the suddenly of Jesus' death that was not supposed to happen, right? And then there is the suddenly of his resurrection, I would suggest to you tonight that when you're facing a suddenly that is a tragedy, the only way that you're going to make it through is with a verily. 
If you don't have a verily, you won't endure the suddenly. In John chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 5, we have this amazing story of Jesus talking with one of the religious leaders. His name is Nicodemus, and they're having this conversation, and, and Jesus says to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. I'm reading it in the King James Version because they are the better translation with these two words that Jesus uses. We teach on this text often because it speaks to us something about how we make it through the suddenlies of life that are tragedies. In verse 5, Jesus does it again. It says, Jesus answers, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so oftentimes we push past these words, especially if we're reading in the King James, because we think it's just some fancy language that we don't use today. If you're using possibly the NIV, they say truly, truly. If you're using the New Living Translation, you'll see it says very truly. Different translations approach it differently, but the King James gets it best. In Hebrew... There's no word like very. So if you're going to say, that's very nice, you wouldn't say very nice. You would say, nice, nice. You would repeat the word for emphasis. That's why when you're reading in the Old Testament, oftentimes in the Psalms, and it's talking about the holiness of God, it'll say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Because in Hebrew, there's no very. And we recognize, right, that God is mostly, he's very holy, so they would say, and if you use three, that's the ultimate. And more often than not, you'll only see that reserved for God. So Jesus here in his conversation with Nicodemus, he understood because he was part of the Jewish culture that Jesus is trying to bring emphasis to something that he's saying. He says it twice, and Nicodemus understands. The word that Jesus used in Aramaic is the word aman. A-H-M-A-N. And Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was saying to him. And he was saying it twice just to make sure. Nicodemus was a religious leader of his day and for him to hold the title that he held, he would have had to have memorized the entire Old Testament chapter and verse. So as soon as the word Amon came out of Jesus' mouth, Nicodemus would have known that he was referring to Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, that he is God, the faithful God, which in Hebrew is the Amon El, that he is the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. A great study in the Old Testament is all the names of God. And you might be familiar with some of them, like God's my provider, my Jehovah Jireh. He's my banner, Jehovah Nisi, my, my healer, Jehovah Raphael. But, but one of the forgotten ones is because is it's a little bit hidden here in the Old Testament, but it's there and it's important. And interesting enough, it's the one that Jesus reaches for. It's that God is the Amon El, which means that he is the one that always tells the truth. That he's faithful in the sense that everything that he says is true. Always, without exception. So when Jesus says to Nicodemus, Aman, Aman, what he's saying to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Nicodemus, what I'm saying to you is true. It's so true 
It is as if you were hearing it from God because I am He. When your suddenly is a tragedy, you need a verily. You need to have something that you know from God is true and is without fail. One of those verses for me is Psalm 27, 13. If you've been around this church for any amount of time, you've heard me speak this verse often. It's, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's one of my verilies. You've got to have some verilies. You've got to have some verilies. I like Psalm 27, 13 because it says to me, regardless of my circumstance now, the goodness of God is waiting for me. It's coming. My verily enables me to endure my suddenly. You've got to find some. And one of the things that we're committed to here at this church, through our teaching, through our life groups, even through serving in ministries, that you're going to be around people. You're going to hear messages. You're going to read books that begins to deposit revelation of verilies into your life that God knows that you need to get through the suddenly that's waiting for you in your tomorrow because they're coming for us all. Matthew 7, 24 to 29 reads this way, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows, it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock, though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it sounds a little bit like a suddenly, doesn't it? It won't collapse because it's built on the bedrock. Right? What's he talking about there? He's talking about verilies. He's talking about the truth of God's word. Verse 26, but anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey, it's foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand, when the rains and the floods come and the wind beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Suddenlies come for everybody, but not everybody has a verily. And the only verily that gets you through the suddenly are the verilies that we find in God's word. Because they come from the great Amon El. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Somebody say encounter. Let's keep going in our story. This is, we're going to pick up in verse 16, and I'm going to take us down to 24. It says, but God kept them from recognizing him. And so he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along, right? So, 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 so God has not allowed them to recognize that it's Jesus. They just think it's another traveler, and now they're walking together. They stop short, and sadness written across their faces, and then one of them, Cleopas, that's the only name that we're given of one of the two. We're not given the name of the other, and that's all the information we're given. No one knows exactly who Cleopas is. You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. Jesus says, what things, right? The things that happened to Jesus, listen to how they describe him, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and the people. It's interesting, right, what they don't say. They don't say Jesus the Messiah. They don't say Jesus our Savior. They, they don't say Jesus the one who has risen from the dead. They describe him only in human terms. Even though it says they're his disciples. 
which means that if they were his disciples, at some point they bought into the belief that he was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Listen to what it says. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened just three days ago, speaking of his death, not of his resurrection, because that's the day he rose. Then, Then they go on. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing. They had seen an angel who told them Jesus is alive. They've got some pretty serious facts here, don't they? Some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, his body was gone just as the woman had said. Now, you would think, with that kind of detail, with that kind of information, that what they would be saying to this traveler is that Jesus, the Messiah, has come, and he's risen from the dead. People that we know and trust have seen him. The tomb is empty, but that's not the story they tell. They tell a very different story. They're giving all the facts that are related to other people's encounters, but their revelation, their belief of who Jesus is, is that they were wrong about who he was. And they're saddened by it. There's two kinds of people in the world. There's those who will share their food off their plate and those who don't. Who are are my food sharers? Raise your hand. Who are my food sharers? All right. All right, now all the rest of you, who are, don't touch the plate on my food, right? Some of you didn't raise your hand. I don't know what that means, right? There must be a third category that I'm not aware of. We had college, the college young professionals over last night, and uh, there was a couple there. I'm not going to mention their name. And, uh, and, 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 the, and the husband reached over, right? Vanessa made her famous coconut pie. She, she made peaches and cream pie. And she made key lime pie, right? So some of you are saying, I know Praxis doesn't have an age limit, but how about college and young professionals? Can I, can I just come to First Fridays, right? And so, so uh, one of the husbands reached over, I kid you not, with a, with a fork to get a bite of the coconut pie, and the wife th- did the maneuver, right? And said, get your own, right? Because she's of the camp of don't eat food off of my plate, right? Because there's some things that you borrow and then some things that you don't. And what those of you who say don't eat off of my plate, you're, you're saying you, you got to get your own pie. you got to get your own fill in the blank. And for many people spiritually, this is part of their journey. In fact, I would argue it's most of our journey. Is that we want our own encounter with Christ. We want our own encounter. We can hear about other people's encounters. It can inspire us. It can give us faith. The Bible talks about that. How about in Revelation where it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. We know that, that our story has, has a spiritual impact in the world. But it's never intended to replace the encounter that you yourself is supposed to have. These two disciples are walking down the road, and really what they're saying is other people have had an encounter with Christ, but we haven't yet. And their encounter is not enough for me to believe. I want my own encounter. 
And that's why Jesus was there. Come on. That's why he showed up for them. Because he knew what they needed. We talked about this same concept with Thomas last week. And we're talking about it again tonight. Because encounters with God are central to who we are at this church If you've been with us for the last couple of months, you know that we've been talking about three words that we believe that God has spoken to us that are supposed to define who we are as a church, at least for this year, if not for the foreseeable future. And one is encounter God. The second one is embrace God's family. And the third is to engage God's mission. Encounter God's presence, embrace God's family, and engage God's mission. These services on Saturday nights, we hope they will do a lot of things. But the number one thing we hope that they do is lead people to an encounter with a living God. There's a lot of things that we hope happen in our life groups. But the number one thing that we hope happens is that you will have an encounter with the living God. Your encounter might start with hearing about other people's encounters, just like you heard the Tatums talking about their story and their journey. We hope it inspires faith in you. We hope that hope begins to rise up in your heart. But at some point, we want you to be like these people in the Bible and say, I don't want to just live off of other people's encounters. I want my own. And Jesus wants you to have your own too. We worship in this church not because we're trying to entertain you with music. You can get that out there. It's not about entertainment here. It's about an encounter. It's about an encounter. The Bible talks about, about, uh, about how, how God inhabits the praises of his people in that verse and how, and I would say that that, that concept kind of drove worship in the 80s and 90s, but I would say in a broken way. Because there was this belief and this, this idea that, that as we worship that God would come. But my, my question to that is, well, what does that say to you about the omnipresence of the creator of the universe? And what that verse really means when you break it down, when you study it, it does not mean that God inhabits the praises of his people. It means that God's people's praises awaken us to the God and who inhabits the place where they are. It means something very different. Because God inhabits... Every place, whether you're there or not, the question is, are you going to be awakened to who he is? And that verse is in the Bible to tell us something about worship, that worship awakens you to the presence of a living God. And that's why we worship here at this church. We believe in prophetic moments here in this church. It's why we have that microphone down there. And if you've been with us again for any amount of time, I know I keep saying that, but I want to speak to who we've been, not just to who we're hoping to be. This is the story of our church, and many of you have experienced it. That sometimes God speaks to you and it's not just for you, but it's something that's supposed to be shared. And if we know you and we trust you and we feel like God's speaking you too, then then we, we pause the service for you to say something. Why is that? Because prophetic words awaken people to a living God. That's what part of what 1 Corinthians 14 is all about. Paul talks about how people will come into a church and then all of a sudden it is as though the person that is sharing is revealing their entire life even though they don't know them. Many of you, that's happened for you. Many of you, you've left here and you've thought, who talked to you about me? Right? We get the emails. You pull somebody aside. Did my wife tell you what happened yesterday? No, she didn't. But the Holy Spirit did, and you're in trouble. No. (laughs) Prophetic moments. 
They awaken people to the presence of God. We want you to have an encounter. God wants you to have an encounter. Scripture, we dig deep into God's word because it awakens us to his presence. God is not some idea for us to believe in. He is a father for us to love, and an encounter gets you there. It gets you there. Prayer. We pray so much in our services because we want you to have an encounter. At the end of every service, there are always people up here at the altars to pray with you at the end of the service. There's moments all throughout the service where we pray. Have you ever noticed as you're reading through the Psalms and David starts with some petition that's really a complaint because he's in a suddenly. He's facing some circumstance that's overwhelming to him and what begins as a petition ends up as a praise. And the reason for that is because he encounters God's presence through the prayer that now when he's in his presence, he's inspired to worship the one who gives him the verily that helps him get through the suddenly. We pray here at the City Life Church, not because we're trying to be pious, but because we believe that there is an encounter with the living God that's waiting for you and we want you to have it. I hope you show up every Saturday filled with expectation and faith that you're gonna encounter God's presence every week in these services. Every week, I hope that you're coming and you're excited about the way that God is gonna reveal himself to you. I've been showing up for these services at the City Life Church for almost 11 years. And I come just as excited. I came just as excited today as I did 11 years ago for my first service. Because I know that I meet with God in this place. I meet with God during the week. I hope that you're meeting with God all throughout the week. But there is a meeting with God that you have in a corporate setting, I'm telling you, that's unlike anything else. Somebody say generations. All right, parents, I'm coming at you. Just giving you a warning. Put them up. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in Scripture. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus, right? So they've been walking along for seven miles. And at the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. And so he went home with them, and as they sat down to eat, come on, he took the bread and he blessed it, and then he broke it and he gave to them. Here it comes again, suddenly, suddenly they recognized him. Their eyes were open, and at that moment, he disappears. Come on, stop it. He's there, and then he vanishes. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road? Listen to this quote out of the New Unger Bible's dictionary. It says, the fatal mistake of the Jews was not in rejecting the scriptures, but in giving them too narrow, too narrow, an unspiritual interpretation. 
The fatal mistake of the Jews was not in rejecting the scriptures, but in giving them a too narrow and unspiritual interpretation. Listen to what Jesus said of the religious leaders of his day in John 5, 39 to 40. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, and yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. He's saying to them, you recognize that you have a need. You recognize that you have a need for eternal life. You recognize that this is what God wants to give all of humanity. That's why you're searching scripture to begin with. In the very scriptures you search, they point to me, and yet you reject me. Why is that? Because they wanted a Messiah to do something different. Because they thought that their greater need was a political need. They thought that their greater need was a physical need. They wanted Israel to be restored to its historical dominance like they experienced under King David and King Solomon and generation after generation after generation after generation of Jewish children were raised to look for a Messiah that was going to restore a political throne. Cleopas and this friend of his on this road were a victim of the house that they grew up in and a community that they were raised in that taught them to look for a Messiah that was different than the one that Scripture itself pointed to. So my question to you is, is this going to be the story of your children? Is this going to be the story of your children? Are your children going to grow up in homes with parents who give them an understanding of Scripture that is too narrow and unspiritual? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to make sure that your children on the road to their life, instead of needing to be corrected, are the ones that are bringing revelation to the world with the people they walk with? That's why we have things like Kid Life Care here. It's not just a nursery so there aren't crying babies in the sanctuary. There's a nursery because something begins to happen in your child's heart that associates fun and community and delight with the people of God. You bring your kids and you put them in the nursery not because you get a break, not because you hope and they poop in their diaper then and not after for you, You put them in there because something inside of you should say, I want my generation that I'm raising to not be Cleopas and Cleopas' friend. I want them to be like Christ on the road who has the answers to the questions that the world is desperately asking. We put them in the nursery and the people that are staffed in there and the leaders that are over it, over it they have a vision for your kids. Safety, yes. Care, absolutely. Meet their physical needs, most certainly. But more importantly... That even your children, when they're young, that when Saturday comes, there's something inside of them that wants to come to church because they're beginning to learn how to delight with the family of God. Workshop just down the hall. It's not just there because kids that don't need the attention in the nursery but really aren't ready yet to be in here because they're not ready for the intensity of this environment. We're not just putting them down there and playing some games with them to occupy 90 minutes of their time. 
the sense of delight and fun continues there, but then that's where it steps up a little bit, and they begin to learn about God's word. They begin to learn about what we would call some of the meta-narratives of Scripture, some of the overarching themes that pass through the Bible. They begin to gain a sense of familiarity with some of who the players are, like Moses and Abraham and Paul, and, 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 they, and, and they're there, right? They're there for a few years before they pass on to Revolution Church, which isn't just some culturally relevant thing that happens on Wednesday night. That's the place where your young people really begin to come into their own with their faith where all of a sudden there's a there's this transference from it not just being my parents faith but it's mine I'm not just on the road with my mom and dad but I'm on the road with Jesus myself and when my friends come to me like Cleopas and their friends and they've got questions I've got answers because people in ministries are pouring and investing in me and when they come out of revolution church we got something called praxis not where that's when it just steps on the accelerator. And they get about five years of spiritual growth in nine months. Most of them, they're going to get there anyways. And what we say, let's just get them there a little quicker. Let's just get them there a little quicker. Then there's college and young professionals. Where there's coconut pie, peaches and cream pie, key lime pie, because we still believe no matter how old you are, that being reminded that delight is a part of the family of God. And if you don't like pie, you're not going to be happy at this church. What kind of kids are you raising? Find a way to get here on Saturday. I don't care what you have to do for your schedule. It's not about this church growing. It's not about this church tracking attendance. Those things aren't important to us. Those things aren't important to us. What's important to us is that you as a parent take seriously the responsibility that God has given you to raise up a generation. To raise up, you're raising up a generation. I, what I should say is that you're going to raise up a generation that is a voice of clarity in the world and not one that needs to be fixed so that they can be the voice of clarity. That's what happened to these two disciples, right? You're tracking with the story, right? And all of a sudden, they realize this is Jesus. They had their encounter. And then, as we're going to see, they run back, and then they begin to say to the disciples, it's true. Raise your children in such a way that they go right from being little to right to being the voice of Christ on the road to Emmaus, which is whatever place that people are headed to, which we're going to get into in a couple of weeks, that is not God's best for you. Emmaus represents for us not the bad things, because really at the end of the day, it's not the bad things that rob us, because most of you aren't out there doing bad things. But you're just giving yourself to too much of the things that aren't God's best for you. We want to raise up a generation that gets people moving back in the direction of where Jesus is and what he's doing in the world today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Anybody here watching the Masters? Who are my golfers? I know. I was watching Sports Center early this morning. That's how I get ready for my sermons. 
They had this incredible story. I wasn't familiar with it. I'm not a huge golf person, but I, I, I like to watch all the majors. And they were talking about this story from 1968. Argentina's Roberto, Roberto Di Vincenzo was poised to battle Bob Goldby in an 18-hole playoff in 1968 when he got the sad news that he had signed an incorrect scorecard. Now, if you're a golfer, you know that's serious business. But listen, listen to the story. The scorecard he signed didn't give him a lower score. His mistake was that he scored his round higher than he was supposed to. He had won the British Open the year before. He was celebrating his 45th birthday on that very Sunday in Augusta. The galleries had serenaded him with happy birthday as he made his way around the course. So every time he would come up to another green, everybody there would sing happy birthday to him. What could have been a joyous occasion quickly turned sour. Golby made two birdies and an eagle on holes number 13 to 15 to shoot a 68 and finish 11 under at 277 for the tournament. And Di Vincenzo made birdies at 15 and 17, but a bogey at the 18 left him with an apparent 65 and an 11 under total. And so one of the other golfers was looking at his scorecard, and as this other golfer began to add up his score, he realized that he was scored a six, his, his numbers individually scored to 66, even though he had written 65. But a 65 was a score, because there was a hole on that course where he had scored a three and not a four, and had mistakenly written a four, giving him a score higher. Now you would think, right? That's not cheating, and it's not. It was an honest mistake. But in golf, once you sign that scorecard, once you sign it, you're saying to all the judges, this is my round. And if it's wrong, you're penalized no matter what. And his penalty caused him that day that he would have won to become the runner-up. And people were, right, even hearing that story, I'm hearing that story and say, what's fair about that? Why, why would a punishment be, be so what seems like out of proportion? You would think the other person would have said, I, I'm not accepting that green jacket under these circumstances. I'm not going to be the winner. There's times where we see things in this life and it seems like the punishment is too much for the crime. It seems like the consequence is far too great for the infraction. And even still today, even though that happened in 1968, people still to say, say golf went too far. I share with you that story because in the summer of 1990, when I was wrestling with whether or not I was going to make a vow of devotion to Christ, one of the turning points for me was in a conversation where I felt like I was having with God, where he said to me, Fred, if it's okay for you to live however you want to live, then you got to explain to me Jesus on the cross. you got to explain it to me, friend. And in that moment, I realized something. That my view of my sin wasn't as serious as it needed to be. Because with God, he never over-exaggerates. With God, his punishment is always perfect for every infraction. And in that moment, I began to realize if my sin 
required the Son of God to leave heaven and come to this world to die for me, then my view of my sin, it needed to change. It needed to change. And I'm sharing that with you because it could be that you're in here right now and you know that you're living a life that you're not supposed to live. And maybe like me, when I was younger, you're buying into this belief, how bad could my mistakes be? And what I would say to you, they're bad enough for Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth and die for you, just like he died for me. Stand with me. Father, I pray that as we worship, I pray that as we worship tonight, that people would get a revelation of the gospel. That people would see the truth of your gospel. And we know that your gospel, it says many things to us. And one of them is where we started with this table that's in front of me, that we cannot earn your love. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. It comes to us because of who you are. And the gospel tells us that, that we are so desperate in our circumstance of our sin that Jesus, you yourself, had to come to die for us. And I pray that tonight that, that people's revelation of who they are without you, God, would rise, would rise to the place of seeing the tragedy of the death of Christ. And I pray that something inside of their hearts tonight, that something inside of their hearts tonight would say, I want more of that grace that Jesus paid such a price for me to have. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.